the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. The theme we have seen in the book of Numbers is journeying with Jesus, walking side by side with him in all that life would throw our way. God had been preparing the nation of Israel to enter the land promised to their forefathers. The children of Israel had fought and prevailed over the Midianites, being the instruments of God's justice and mercy. Israel was now moving to the border of the land of Canaan, about to move into all God had for them. Last time, we saw two of the twelve tribes wanting to settle in the land that they acquired from the Midianites. Moses responded by telling them that they were in sin and would cause the other tribes to stumble and settle for less than all that God had in store for them. We continue looking at Moses' response as we join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So go and build your cities for your little ones and the folds for your sheep, and do that which is proceeded out of your mouth. But you better make sure you do it to all the way to the end. If you will not do God's part that he had for them, that included a couple of things. It included not slacking off. It included not sending their best soldiers or flat out refusing to go once their cities were built. No, we've got cities now. We're going to go ahead and settle in them. Any of those things would have been unacceptable to the Lord. I find it interesting. People sometimes when they check out, they check out. God wants us to finish what we do well. Whether it's a job change, whether it's you're moving somewhere, God wants you to finish well, not just be focused on the brand new thing that is exciting. But here we see he says, behold to them, which means listen up. And he says to them, if you don't do this, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Yes, they'll have betrayed their fellow tribes, but ultimately they will have rebelled against the Lord. And so even if no one else notices they're slacking off, even if no one else notices they didn't send their best soldiers, the Lord will, and he will hold them responsible. He says, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, what does that mean? We say that phrase to people when they're messing around and we're telling them to say, you think you're getting away with it, but you're not going to. And that's kind of what it means. The phrase there, be sure, means you will experience your sin. What does that mean? One of the biggest lies that Satan tells us is that we will escape the consequences of sin. But you know what? You and I cannot mock God by believing that. Look over at Galatians chapter 6, 7 and 8. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. It says, don't be deceived. And you can be assured when the Bible says, don't be deceived, people will be. They'll think, oh no, I'm okay. God is not mocked. You're not going to get away with it. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, things that die, things that rot. Conversely, he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Don't mock God by thinking, well, yeah, he had to deal with others when they sinned, but his grace will cover me. No, it won't. He might give you opportunities and time to repent, 
But eventually your sin will find you out. You will experience the consequences of your sin. He says, go ahead and build your cities. Do what you've requested. Just keep your word when you're done and everything will be fine. It wasn't what Moses wanted. He's not happy about it, but he can live with that. This new development does buy Moses more time because remember, what did the Lord tell him? He said, go avenge me on the Midianites and then you're going to die on the mountain, right? Well, now he's got to wait till they're done building all their cities. That's going to take a while. And I personally believe that this is when the whole plan for Deuteronomy arose in Moses' heart. Because at this point in time, he's not governing the daily affairs of the nation. We've already seen that he's transferred that to Joshua, and many of the other leaders are doing their job there. Moses isn't really governing a lot of things. Maybe he's helping Joshua with the hardest decisions, but he's not running day-to-day operations. So what's he going to do? He comes up with the book of Deuteronomy, his last will and testament, you could say, to the next generation before they go into the land. What do the tribes say? Well, they agreed to the terms, verse 25. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, they spoke unto Moses saying, remember, it's just them talking right now because they drew near. And he says, your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all our cattle shall be there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will pass over every man armed for war before the Lord to battle as my Lord says. That's what you've asked us to do we will do that. So now in verse 28, they're going to make it official. So concerning them, Moses commanded Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. These are the leaders and the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. He commanded them saying, if the children of Gad and the children of Reuben will pass with you over Jordan, every man armed to the battle, if they fulfill their side of the argument before the Lord and the land, their agreement, not argument, and the land shall be subdued before you, then ye shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. But if they will not pass over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. If they go back on their word, then this land, they can't have it. Verse 31, so the children of Gad, the children of Reuben, they answered saying, as the Lord has said unto your servants, so will we do. We will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, that the possession of our inheritance on this side, Jordan, may be ours. And so the deal is struck. Verse 33, And Moses gave unto them, even to the children of Gad, and to the children of Reuben, and unto the, what? The half-tribe of Manasseh, where'd they get involved in this deal? The son of Joseph, he gave unto them the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites. That's the land the first two tribes asked for. But now added to that is the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan. The land with all the cities thereof in the coasts, even the cities of the country round about. What happened there? You know what these two tribes did? They stumbled another half of a tribe because after seeing their request granted, they started to think to themselves, hey, nobody's settled in Bashan yet. We can have all those highlands. That's the Golan Heights area today, which is so not fought physically over, but in the political realm is fought over between Assyria and Israel. It's wanted because it's the perfect land. It's very safe. You have the high ground. Just flat, it's rocky, but it's ton plains that just stretch everywhere. It's beautiful, gorgeous land. And they said, we can have all the highland to ourselves. This is the other problem when you settle for what you think is best instead of what God wants you to do. Because people look at you and they go, well, they're doing well. I mean, there's no obvious sin in their life. God's you know, blessing them and, and they're, they're experiencing victories in their life. I mean, they look good. And then it encourages other people to settle for second best too. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says that when we come together, we're supposed to provoke each other to love and to good works not to settle for second best. I'm to stir people up to go further, to step out in faith, to trust God in areas that are harder, not to just rest on your laurels or don't go all the way with Jesus. 
Well, verse 33 says that they all, now two and a half tribes are going to settle on this side. So the children of Gad, verse 34, they built Debon and Ataroth and Aroer. I don't have a map for these because these two and a half tribes were basically dispossessed early on. Most of these cities were destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. Nobody knows the exact place they were at this time. But there is something interesting it mentions here as we read through it. Verse 35, and Atroth and Shophan and Jeazer and Jog Beha and Beth Nimrah and Beth Haran. They were fortified cities and folds for sheep. So that's what the children of Gad, the one tribe, built. Then the other tribe, the children of Reuben, they built Heshbon and Eli Eleah and Kirjath Aim and Nebo and Baal Me'on. But then it tells us here why we don't know where these places were for their names being changed and Shibma. And they gave other names unto the cities which they builded. Why did they change their names? Well, back in Exodus chapter 23, verse 13, this is a good thing, by the way. So I said, these aren't bad people. They're not doing something wicked here. It's just not God's best. They're doing what God said here. The Lord commands them as he's giving the first set of civil laws to govern the nation. In Exodus 23, 13, he says, and in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect. You know, I mean, be sharp. Don't compromise. Don't let your guard down. And here it is. And make no mention of the names of other gods, neither let it be heard out of your mouth. Most of the cities here are named after pagan gods. So Israel changed them to something else. Israel continues this practice when they enter the promised land and conquer it. They change the names of a lot of the cities. The problem is, is that some of those cities are still around today. That's why we know where they are, but we don't know where these cities are. While the land nearby, around where Israel's camp right now, the land that's mentioned in all these cities here, They had no enemies left, but some had returned farther north to Bashan. So the half-tribe of Manasseh, they had some work to do if they were actually going to live there. So look at what it says here, verse 39. And the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, they went to Gilead and took it and dispossessed the Amorite, which was in it. So some of the Amorites had resettled there. And it says, Moses gave Gilead unto Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt therein. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, he went and took the small towns thereof. So these is around Gilead, took some of the small towns there, and he renamed them Havoth Jair. And Nobah, another descendant of Manasseh, went and took Kenath and the villages thereof, and he called it Nobah. I guess when you conquer a city, you can name it after yourself if you want. Named it after his own name. Again, these tribes aren't wicked people. They're taking steps of faith. They're experiencing victories in their life still. But again, it wasn't God's plan. It was theirs. As we close out this chapter, maybe you're someone who's done that. I mean, maybe you've settled for God's second best somewhere. Can I be honest with you? I think in some ways we've all had areas where we've settled. Some of them are bigger than others, but I think we've all had areas where we've settled. So what do you do? Purpose not to do it again. That's what you do. You can't change the past, but you can make better decisions now, right? So just make that commitment. Say, Lord, I want your best for my life moving forward, whatever it is. Amen? Chapter 33, it says, Now these are the journeys of the children of Israel, which went forth out of the land of Egypt with their armies under the hand, under the guidance of Moses and Aaron. And so Moses decides to write their goings out according to their journeys, because the Lord told them to, by the commandment of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their goings out. You might be asking, why do this? Well, first off, the Lord told them to, so that's good enough reason, right? However, interesting as we go through this list, many stopping points are here that weren't there. So Moses wants to chronicle every stopping point here to show us Israel didn't just fly from one place to the other. They weren't listed before in Exodus or Numbers because nothing special happened there. Secondly, You list it because it shows the big picture how God kept his promise. Remember, he made three promises to Israel. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. 
I'm going to bring into the promised land. Well, here's a trail of God's faithfulness from the big picture to bring them to the promised land. And then finally, and that's I love, it shows one solid thread, one people going from Egypt to the promised land. Why is that important? Because no mention is made of two generations. I want to read you something Expositor's Commentary says because I think they do it best. He says, were one to read this list of staging places, he would conclude that Israel marched faithfully from one place to another in this orderly progression from Egypt to Moab. And that's the point of this chapter. The new generation has become the replacement for the old. It is as though there had never been a first generation or any of those failures. The people who arrive at Moab are regarded as the people who left Egypt which means as God is detailing out their history, he doesn't see any of those failures. And isn't that good to know if we chart the history of our lives that God doesn't see all those failures, that he sees us as that finished product, right? That's great news. I love that. It's important for that reason. We're going to read through it. It says, and they departed with the first charts leaving Egypt and they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with a high hand in an exalted state. How different from their slave status just days before. Now they're coming out with riches and honor and God's glory going before them. And they did it in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn. As they're leaving, they're having funerals, which the Lord had smitten among them. And then it makes a mention, it says, and upon their gods also the Lord executed judgments. The Lord reminds them, I judge their gods. You know, as we went through the book of Exodus, we, we saw how the Lord showed his superiority over all of Egypt's pantheon through the plagues. And, and why is he showing his superiority? Because there are no gods beside him. The Canaanites that they're going to face, they've got their gods too. And they're going to come out to fight and think their gods are going to give them the victory. And the Lord's saying, they don't exist. And I'll put them in their place just like I put the gods of Egypt in their place too. No place. I will have victory and triumph and judge them as well. Well, verse 5, now we go from Egypt to Sinai. And the children of Israel, they removed from Ramses, and they pitched in Sakoth. And they departed from Sakoth, and they pitched in Etham, which is in the edge of the wilderness. And they removed from Etham, and they turned again into Pirha-Hiroth, which is before Baal-Zephram. That's where they met the Red Sea, and they cornered themselves, and they pitched there in Migdal. And then they departed from before Pirha-Hiroth, and they passed through the midst of the Red Sea into the desert, the wilderness. And they went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham, and they pitched in Marah. And they removed from Marah, and they came unto Elim. And Elim, in Elim there, there were 12 fountains of water, and 70 palm trees, and they pitched, they stopped there. And they removed from Elim, and they encamped by the Red Sea. And they removed from the Red Sea and encamped in the wilderness of Zin, the southern desert of the Sinai Peninsula. And they took their journey out of the wilderness of Zin, and they encamped in Dovka. And they departed from Dovka and encamped in Elush. And they removed from Elush and encamped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they departed from Rephidim and pitched in the wilderness of Sinai. So we go all the way from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And just a couple important things. He mentions how God was faithful to provide for them, even though there was no water and no food. He took care of them through manna and through the rock that had water coming out of it. Now in verses 16, we get from Sinai to Kadesh. It says, And they removed from the desert of Sinai, and they pitched at Kibroth Hatavah, and they departed from Kibroth Hatavah, and encamped at Hazeroth. I'm going to read these places. They have no meaning to us. And they departed from Hazeroth and pitched in Rithma, and they departed from Rithma and pitched at Ramon Perez. And they departed from Ramon Perez. That's not a famous Latin singer. And they pitched in Libna. 
and they journeyed from Rizna, and they pitched in Kehel Athah, and they went from Kehel Athah, and they pitched in Mount Shafer, and they removed from Mount Shafer and encamped in Haradah. And again, if you go back in, into the other books, you're not going to see a lot of these places because nothing important happened there. And they removed from Haradah, and they pitched in Machheloth, and they removed from Machheloth and encamped at Tahath, and they departed from Tahath and pitched at Terah, and they removed from Terah and pitched in Mithka, and they went from Mithka and pitched in Hashmonah, and they departed from Hashmonah and they encamped at Moseroth, and they departed from Moseroth and pitched in Bene Ja'akan, and they removed from Bene Ja'akan, and again, not uh, Shakakan's brother. And they encamped at Hor Ha I can't even say it. Hor Ha Gadid Gadad Gadud, you know. Hor Ha I am not going to try. And they went from Hor Ha Gitgad, there we go, and they pitched in Jot Batha, and they removed from Jot Batha, I think that's in a Star Wars movie, and encamped at Ebrona, and they departed from Ebrona and encamped at Ezion Geber. And they removed from Ezion Geber, and they pitched in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. And now it chronicles all their time from Sinai getting to the, that's the wanderings in the wilderness, and where they end up at Kadesh again, when now that old generation has almost died off, and they're ready to go into the promised land. So now, verse 37, we're going to go from Kadesh to Edom. It says, and they removed from Kadesh and pitched in Mount Hor, in the land, edge of the land of Edom. And And Aaron the priest went up into Mount Hor at the commandment of the Lord, and he died there. In the fortieth year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the first day of the fifth month, and Aaron was 123 years old when he died in Mount Hor. And King Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south of the land of Canaan, he heard of the children of Israel. The rest of the story is that Israel fought with him and defeated him. I think it's interesting that Moses mentions, because he's not talking about a whole lot that happens in, in, in these places, but he mentions Aaron's death and the victory over Arad to show that even though Israel had just lost one of their spiritual leaders, God still gave them victory and God still led them here to the promised land. Why is that important? Because just like Aaron went up to a mountain and died, Moses is about to go up into a mountain and die. And just like Arad, the Canaanite, came out and he attacked them, they're going to face enemies when they cross over without Moses. And so I think Moses is reminding them, hey, you guys were fine. You're going to be okay without me too, because the Lord will be with you and give you the victory. And that's a good thing to remember. You know, because sometimes we have lots of people around us that encourage us, and it's great, praise the Lord. And then you have other times where you're like, the Lord maybe takes those people away or sends them off to do other things, and, and you kind of got, just got to go with him, right? or make new friends, or have the Lord deliver you as you partner with someone else. Well, from the edge of Edom, we go to the edge of the promised land, verse 41. And they departed from Mount Hor, and they pitched in Zalmona, and they departed from Zalmona, and pitched in Punon, and they departed from Punon, and pitched in Oboth, and they departed from Oboth, and pitched in Ij Abarim, in the borders of Moab, and they departed from Aim, even Moses didn't want to say it again, and pitched in Debon Gad, and they removed from Debon Gad and camped in Ayamon Dibla Thaim. And they removed from Ayamon Dibla Thaim. And they pitched in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. And they departed from the mountains of Abarim and they pitched in the plains of Moab by Jordan. That's where they are now. They pitched by Jordan from Besh Jeshemoth even unto Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. The idea is, he says, God brought you all this way. Unlike the last generation, though, they're not going to stop here. They're going to go into the land. And so we have this little section here at the end, which is why I wanted to do this tonight, because it fits with the previous chapter. If they're going to go into the land successfully, they must not do it with a half-hearted commitment. 
They can't settle for their idea of best. They must do this God's way all the way if they're going to experience all that he has for them. And so how are they going to do that? Well, God now in verses 50 through 56 tells Moses to tell them three ways they're going to do that. He says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho, saying, Speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, When you are passed over Jordan, when you take the next step on this list, you haven't taken it yet, but when you take the next step on this list into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures, destroy all their molten images, and quite pluck down all their high places. And you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it. For I have given you the land to possess it. Moses says, don't anybody on any other tribes get any bright ideas about where you're going to settle down. And you shall divide the land by lot for an inheritance among your families. And to the more you shall give, the more inheritance. To the fewer you shall give, the less inheritance. Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falls, where I pick. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. So what are those three ways that God tells them they're going to do this with all their heart? Number one, they have to completely drive out those who are there. It's interesting that he says drive them out because it shows that God's plan wasn't to wipe out the Canaanites. Their judgment for those years of wickedness, remember when God promised the land to Abraham, he said the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. Their judgment for their sin was to be driven out of the land so they would consider their ways. But because they resisted, they had to be completely wiped out. And you know, it's interesting, that's the same thing that's going to happen in the tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 11, the Lord sends angels to fly around the earth saying, don't take the mark of the beast. Worship the Lord of heaven instead. You've still got time. Don't do this. Don't make this mistake because if you do, you forfeit all chance for eternity in heaven. God doesn't want to wipe out anybody. He wanted to drive them out so they consider their ways. But they resisted, just like they will in the tribulation, and will be judged. They must completely drive out those who are there. Secondly, they must destroy idolatry wherever they find it. He says destroy their pictures, which is a word for any carved representation of a deity. They have to destroy the molten images, so any metal representation of the deity. And all their high places, you have to lay them low. Any worship center that exists, you have to destroy it. And then thirdly, they must make this land their home. No ideas about what's best for them. That's a great lesson for us about how we should deal with sinful behaviors in our life. I can't coddle myself. I can't tolerate any compromise. Nor can I leave things in my life that cause me to compromise. I have to make the Lord and his ways my home. Because if I don't, it will eventually trip me up. Look what the Lord closes with here. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, if you're not committed to this, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. The word there, pricks, means splinters in your eyes. Now, if that sounds painful, it's because it probably is. They're going to cause you pain. He says they're going to be thorns in your side. The word for thorns there, it refers to the torture stick that would be used to cause great pain by poking tender places on your body. They would put them underneath fingernails. They would put them into tender spots, you know, your side and other places. And they'll also vex you. They will always be your enemy. And that's not the worst consequences. Moreover, verse 56, it shall come to pass that I will do unto you. They're going to bother you, but I will do unto you as I thought to do to them. I will dispossess you out of the land too. God doesn't want to discipline his people. 
But he can't use them as an instrument of judgment on the Canaanites and then ignore it when Israel does the same things. He can't. A Christian should never comfort themselves with the idea that God won't do anything when they sin because they're his child and they're not just anybody. Don't confuse him with giving you time to repent as permission to sin. And never think that grace is a license to sin. That's the mentality of an unsafe person, not a safe person. I do find it interesting that this final exhortation that God gives, and a very serious one, is right after the request of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Those two and a half tribes settled, and God doesn't want anyone else to do the same. And you know, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, it, it exhorts us that same way. It's just, guys, we've got a cloud of witnesses around us who have broke the tape. They have finished the race God set them on. So you need to follow in their footsteps. And how are you going to do that? Well, you do have to lay aside the sin that so easily besets you, but you also need to lay aside the weights, things that aren't bad, but they hold you back. A lot of times the Lord says, well, I don't want you to do this anymore. And I'm like, okay, there's nothing wrong with this, Lord. What's the big deal? And he's like, it's holding you back. I want to do more in your life. Can you just give it to me and trust me? How about we heed the warning of Hebrews to lay aside everything that might hold us back? It can be easy to coast through life, to just drift on without any thought of where God would like to move us to, or what new adventures we may be called to. We can settle for the ease of comfort, simply because we are just tired of fighting. Maybe we just want to... Maybe we just want a sense of normalcy. But God never wants us to settle in our walk with Him. He desires the best for us to be in step with Him as we journey through life. Don't settle for what is easy and within grasp. Let's walk into all that God may have for us as we hold on to His promises and move forward in faith in every situation. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.